We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Nathan, for that kind introduction, and good morning to you all. Come on, you guys can do even a little better than that. Good morning. I need to know you're out there. Thank you so much. Well, this is a treat for me. Uh, My family and I, uh, uh, Nathan mentioned my wife Margie and I, we live in the Kansas City area with our two kids, and we worship at the Brookside campus of Christ Community Church. Uh, But I was a pastor. I got my pastoral start here at Christ Community. I'm so grateful for this community. Uh, that not only worships faithfully together each Sunday, but also encourages young pastors uh, like I was way back in 2009. So this is uh, really a treat. And what Nathan, he alluded to, but that first sermon that I gave in 2008 uh, was in the Student Ministry Center. So if you know what that uh, area is, just one little small part of the church, that was the entire church back in 2008. So it's amazing to see what God has done uh, in the last decade. Uh, so as, as Nathan mentioned, now I work with Made to Flourish, this national organization launched out of Christ Community Church. Uh, we're encouraging pastors in churches across the country. About 4,400 pastors are a part of our network across the country. And we have these discussions about what does faith in Christ have to do with where we're spending most of our time uh, at work, whether that's paid or unpaid. By the way, whenever you hear that word today, work, uh, we're not just talking about compensated work, but It's contribution. It's wherever we're contributing, whether that's volunteering, stay-at-home parent, whatever it would look like. I guess that's probably why I was asked to speak today, because as we heard the text read, you heard that there were themes about work, and Paul uh, introduces those themes in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking there in a second. But this this is not supposed to be super complicated. To put some flesh on it, uh, I think of my dad. Uh, My dad was a, a high school superintendent in a very small town. And when I mean very small, I don't mean like 30,000 people. There were 400 people in our town uh, of Fairmount, North Dakota. Uh, and there was nine people in my graduating class. And uh, you got to figure, even if you're the valedictorian, you're not sure if you can answer that you're in the top 10 percentile of your class when you got to fill out that application. Like, this is an actual small town. But my dad was a faithful superintendent there for uh, over 20 years, um, And I saw my dad get up every morning at 6 a.m., get ready for the school day. He'd put a suit on. It was always a suit in those days. And uh, he'd try to get to school by 7 a.m. so he could have about an hour, hour and a half before the students came in. Then he'd work a long work day, and he'd try to be home by 5 p.m. so he could have dinner with the family. Uh, But then oftentimes, and you know this about schools, right? There's lots of things going on in the evening. So he might return for uh, a board meeting or uh, a a football game or basketball or theater or something like that. In other words, my dad worked really hard, 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours a week. Then in another part of my dad's life, we grew up going to church. So we were in those pews every single Sunday. None of this one to two times a month stuff that is the norm for, for many of us. We were there every single, every single week. And it's interesting because as I think back in all those years, I don't think my dad ever once heard from the pastoral team or the church that what he did for 50, 60, 70 hours had 
anything to do with what God was doing in the world. Like, you had got the feeling that God didn't care about that stuff. And I think back about that, and I just, I sort of feel sad, because I think that would have meant a lot to my dad, to see that connection, to hear that connection. I mean, the average adult will spend something like 60,000 hours of our lives working, whether paid or unpaid. So if faith in Christ is supposed to be at the center of our lives, the Bible says that, right? (laughs) Faith in Christ is supposed to be the center of our lives. How does that impact where we spend most of our time? So we've been in this series, uh, Reconstructing Faith, asking what it might look like to build back a faith that has been deconstructed. This topic of how faith relates to our work is super important because we have to wrestle with whether faith is only a private, kind of personal, off-to-the-side thing, or does it have public relevance for the majority of our lives, for the majority of our waking hours? So to be helping us think about that, we're going to be looking at one little sentence in Ephesians about honest work, just one little sentence. And I have to say, if you were looking to summarize the entire Christian view of work in one sentence, this actually does a pretty good job of it. It doesn't say everything, but it's actually pretty good. I think of it like a little acorn that has within it an entire tree. So this little sentence we're looking at today, this little acorn has three parts. First of all, what does honest work require? Secondly, what does honest work include? And then thirdly, what does honest work enable? So that's where we're headed. What does it require, what does it include, and what does it enable? So let's read the text again. It's short. Uh, Ephesians 4.28, to remind us uh, of the text, says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. First of all today, honest work requires repentance from dishonest work. So it began, let the thief no longer steal. This echoes one of the Ten Commandments, actually commandment number eight, you shall not steal. I think we all know what stealing is, right? It's taking another person's property without permission or legal right and without intending to return it. But as I was thinking about this, you know, I I wonder what comes into your mind when you think about theft. I tend to think about something like, uh, I don't know, Les Miserables, uh, Jean Valjean, who's the ex-convict, he goes into the priest's home at night and, and in the night he kind of steals away the prized china, or not the china, but the, the prized silver and he, he storms off. Or maybe you think about like a pickpocket who in a large crowd grabs your wallet without noticing it. In other words, when I read that command, let the thief no longer steal, it appears to be directed at a pretty like narrow, specific crime. And because of that, my next thought is this has nothing to do with me. I mean, maybe I can point to like one or two times in my life, but like this, this, I can kind of gloss over this section. In fact, I almost decided not to talk about this uh, part of the text in my sermon just because I wondered how, how much public relevance it would have. But there's this funny thing in the Bible. If you read really closely, if you pay attention, sin mutates. It's constantly taking on different variants, these new forms So what you thought was a simple, narrow, little, straightforward command, actually, it has many forms, and it hits way closer to home uh, than I first realized. So even in the Bible, we see lots of different forms of stealing. Uh, So here here are just a few that you see in the Bible. First of all, you see embezzlement. The Bible doesn't use this word, but this is just the idea that you're in charge of the money, and you just kind of skim a little off the top. No one's going to notice. 
So this was actually the sin of Judas, who is one of Jesus' disciples. And here's what it says in John chapter 12, verse 6. It says of Judas, he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I love that phrase, help himself. Like, you know, it's kind of like my, my management fee here. I'll just take a little for myself. Here's a second category of, of theft in the Bible. Not paying those who have done work for you. So this is not taking what someone has. This is like not giving what is owed. This is Leviticus 19.3. It says, you shall not steal and you shall not keep for yourselves the wages of a labor until morning. So like if you employ someone and like keep not paying them, the Bible sees that as a form of theft. Here's a third category of theft. Uh, charging more than what is owed, especially if there's a huge difference in knowledge between the seller and the buyer. So this is Luke chapter 3. The tax collectors were coming to the John the Baptist. It says, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do if we want to repent and you know, align ourselves with the kingdom of God? John the Baptist said, don't collect any more than you're required to. This is common with tax collectors. They had a fee that they were supposed to collect, but they would kind of just add some more onto that. Here's a fourth category of theft uh, in the Bible that was very common. Extortion. This is where you threaten someone and you say, like, if you don't do this thing and I've got power, like, you, you, you're going to want to have to, like, pay up so you can get out of it. So this was common of soldiers in the first century. Luke chapter 3. Some soldiers asked John the Baptist, what should we do if we want to repent? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So even this really quick view shows that theft was super common in the first century uh, when Ephesus was written. So here's a question. How common is theft today? It's super pervasive, you guys. (laughs) It's super pervasive. But we would expect that because we have a different economy, theft looks very different in our world. And when you look at the data, that's exactly what you see. So here's just a couple stats for our consideration this morning. First category, identity theft. Anyone had like their credit card stolen in the last month a few times? Like I feel like this is always happening. Uh, AARP did a study and victims lost $52 billion to identity thieves in 2021. Here's a second category, tax fraud and avoidance. Charles Reddick, the commissioner of the IRS, estimates the U.S. loses one trillion dollars every year in unpaid taxes. That is not a typo. One trillion with a T. Here's a third category, stealing intellectual property. This is where, uh, you know, maybe you're a business and you see this other business do something really great, but it's protected, and I'm just going to kind of take that idea and make some money. So the commission on the, th- on the theft of American intellectual property estimates the annual cost from IP losses may be as high as $600 billion. Here's a fourth category, Shoplifting. This is probably more in line with what we think of when we think of stealing or theft. According to the Retail Industry Leaders Association, as much as 68.9 billion worth of products were stolen from retailers from in 2019, and we've seen theft spike uh, kind of in the post-COVID years. By the way, um, actually, uh, the numbers are three times as high though for shoplifting for employees. It's not usually people like coming into a business and stealing. It's usually employees themselves that do about three times as much uh, shoplifting from businesses. Here's a fifth category. Uh, Not paying for work others have done. So some of you are small business owners and you've been on the wrong side of this. (laughs) Like you've got 
this invoice and it just never comes. Or you're a freelancer and like they never pay. So according to a 2019 study commissioned by Freelancers Union, which represents over 56 million independent workers across the U.S., 74% of freelancers have experienced non-payment or late payment from clients. The average freelance worker lost $5,900 on missed payments that year, which accounted for 13% of their total income. If you are a freelancer, you have to budget for theft. It's like materials, travel, a line for theft, and it's going to be 13% of your budget. Here's... uh, Here's another category. I kind of feel like I'm meddling with this next one, so just, you know, at least, at least I know it. Uh, here's the sixth category. Not working at work and still collecting a paycheck. According to data collected by Gallup, 66% of workers in the American workforce are checked out at their jobs, resulting in an estimated $480 to $600 billion a year in lost productivity. You add it all up with these examples, and this is by no means all the categories of theft, it's between two and three trillion dollars of our economy a year in theft. That's about half the size of the federal budget. So I'm picking on everyone else. I'm in church world. I've been a pastor. We work with pastors. What does theft look like for pastors? I saw someone do this. It's actually very obvious. It's plagiarism. In the world of pastoring, plagiarism is the primary mode of stealing. We steal people's ideas or people's sermons, we pass them off as our own, and we get paid for it. In fact, if you look closely enough, you'll find that almost every type of work has its own unique kind of theft. There's a unique kind of stealing for financial professionals and a different one for mechanics and a different one for nonprofit leaders, looks a little bit different for contract workers. Because in every profession, there are unique temptations and opportunities to take what is not ours. But in a world where stealing is so normal, it's just, it's just very normal, Paul now says, not so with you. Not so with you. This new community of Jesus followers is characterized by putting off theft in any form. Let the thief no longer steal. And whatever's been true in the past, in Christ, now for each of us, stealing now has no place. Now notice that Paul doesn't end the sentence there. He doesn't end with a don't. That's because the Christian life is not simply a list of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that, make sure you don't do that. Wouldn't that be awful? It's like if you were asking a musician how to play piano. Piano players in here? If you ask, you know, how do you play piano? And they said, well, it's very easy. You just don't press the wrong keys. You don't play too fast. You don't play too slow. And you don't play too loud. Also, you don't play too soft. Of course not. Piano players spend way more time thinking about how to actually make music because that's the point. And what is true of playing the piano is all the more true of following Jesus. There's not only a negative, but there's also a a positive vision of the good life, the life that God designed. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at the next part of the verse. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Secondly, today, honest work includes all labor, which produces something good. All labor. (laughs) Now, normally I wouldn't do this, uh, but I want to show you one other translation of this verse that captures a little bit different sense of the text. So here's what we just read. It says, rather let him labor, this is the ESV, doing honest work with his own hands, 
Here's the NASB. The NASB is a little bit uh, more of kind of a, a wooden, literal word-for-word translation of the Greek. I don't always prefer it, but in this case, I actually think it gets at the sense of the text. It says, rather, he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good. The idea here is that each of us is to produce, by our own effort and work, something that is good, something that has value. So here's the question I want to ask you today. What makes your work good? Like if Jesus himself came to you and he looked you in the eye, kind of grabbed you by the shoulders lovingly and just said, you know, as you labor, produce something that is good. What would that even look like? I don't know if you consciously realize it or not, but our our culture actually gives a lot of answers uh, to that question of what makes work good. Here, uh, I was just thinking about it. Here, Here are some of the most common answers to what makes your work good in our culture. The first answer, work is good if it's aimed at saving the world. Work is good if it's aimed at saving the world. You know, something really important. If your job is doing something really important in the world, and there's a for-profit version of this and like a non-profit version of this. So Elon Musk, he's the CEO of Tesla. This is not an opinion of Elon Musk one way or another, but he tweets out a few years ago. He said, sure, Tesla is a super hard place to work. But like no one changed the world on 40 hours a week. It's more like 80 to 100 hours a week, he would later say. So for Elon Musk, work, the reason why we work around here is to change the world. Puts a lot of pressure on your day job, if that's sort of your category uh, for for work, but it it isn't inspirational. Here's the second category. Work is good if it's an outlet for our passion. You've heard this. Do what you love, right? If you do what you love, you will never work a day in your life. That's what Steve Jobs said about work. It's sort of lovely. It's, it's, again, very inspiring. I'm not sure how many of the world's six billion people can ever hope to say it, but it's got a nice ring to it. Here's a thir- third category. Work is good if it earns a large income. Can I get an amen? So uh, I remember being like a sophomore in high school. They had these books about occupations. You could read about them. I don't know if you guys ever had these books in high school. But I, I was paging through them, and I was reading all these descriptions of the work, but then there was a box in the upper right-hand corner, and it showed like the, the salary that you would earn in that job. And I learned quickly that I don't need to read the job description. <laughs> I just need to look at the box in the upper right-hand corner. That's how you make a decision about work, which is why I became a pastor. <laughs> the dots didn't connect there somehow. I wonder how you'd complete that sentence. Work is good if fill in the blank. In the Bible, work is good for at least three main reasons. First of all, God himself is described as a worker. So you open up your Bible, kind of page one. The first thing you'll see is not that God is holy or that he's merciful or that he's just or that he's righteous. The first thing you'll learn about God is that he goes to work. Creating something that is not only functional and like, well, just incredibly abundant, but is also beautiful. It's like nice to look at. It's, It's enjoyable to the senses. The second reason is that in the Bible, not only is God a worker, but we're actually created in his image to like represent him on earth, to be about the sort of work that he would do, that he has done, that we're created in his image, which is why in Genesis 2, God gives uh, Adam and Eve a shovel, not a hymn book. (laughs) He says, not sing to me, but dig the garden, like cultivate, make something out of the earth that I've created. 
But there's a third reason. We talk a lot, a lot about those first two at Christ Community, but there's a third reason why in the Bible your work is good, and it's this. God is involved with you in your work to serve the tangible needs of others and bring delight to the world. God works through you to serve all people. Here's why I say that. Let's look at one verse. Someone actually brought this verse to my attention a couple months ago, and I'm still thinking about this. My mind is sort of blown when I read it. This is a a text in Isaiah. It's describing the work of farmers. So maybe of you uh, come from a, a farming context or know about the world of farmers. Here's what the text says. It says, does the plowman plow every day to plant seed? No. Does he continuously break up and cultivate the soil? No. He plants wheat in rows and barley in plots with spelt as their border. His God teaches him order. He instructs him. Certainly black cumin is not threshed with a threshing board and a cartwheel is not rolled over the cumin, but black cumin is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Bread grain is crushed, but it's not threshed endlessly. Though the wheel of the farmer's cart rumbles, his horses do not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He gives wonderful advice. He gives great wisdom. This is an amazing text. The whole thing is talking about all like the insider knowledge that farmers have. Uh, the little tricks of their trade to maximize yield. Like, you know, the, the bread grain. You shouldn't crush it too much, otherwise you're going to ruin it. Or there's a way to, to guide the horse cart very carefully so it doesn't crush the seed. It takes a lot of talent, actually. There's an art and a craft in how to do it well. You'd have to be a farmer to fully appreciate it. And then, did you see it? This verse says that God is the one who instructs and teaches the farmer these things. Do you know what that means? It means that God is into the craft, the technique, the nitty-gritty details of how to do it well. After all, it's his creation. He put all those little potentialities in there to be explored and discovered and to be used to serve others. So this is profound for your work. So you're a hairstylist. And there's this particular way you deal with certain kinds of hair, whether they're thin or whether they're thick, or a thin spot over here, the way it sits on the face, all of it matters to how you bring beauty and dignity and confidence to someone. Or you're a server at the restaurant, and you figure out there's this rhythm of like when and how to check in with guests and how to know when to suggest something or when to back off. And like you just know how to make them enjoy their experience with each other. You just, you've done it so much, you can tell. Or you're a financial advisor and when you get with someone, you can kind of sense their emotions and, and you know what questions to do to like draw them out and assess their risk tolerance and, and what good they want their money to do in the world. On and on and on. There are tricks to your trade. This passage in Isaiah says God's actually involved in that. He's actually your ultimate instructor because your work participates with the work he's doing in the world. Work becomes good. Here's my summary. Work becomes good when through increasing excellence and love, people are increasingly helped by the way your work serves them. It's one of the main ways that God demonstrates his care, his grace, his provision, his purposes in the world. 
Here's a quote uh, from Dorothy Sayers. She's a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and I love how she put it. She said, the only Christian work is good work, well done. Work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in their profession or trade, not outside of it. So work is meant to produce a good thing in and of itself. But in the Bible, our labor is good for one other reason, for what it enables. Look back at how the text finishes. It says, all this happens so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Finally today, honest work enables generosity. This last clause points to another reason why we work. It provides for our needs and we make some money to have something to share with other people. I remember some of my first paychecks. The feeling I had when I received that little slip of paper. Do you remember like the feeling that you had when you got that very first paycheck? Mine was begging groceries, Hornbachers, $5.60 an hour. And like I got that number and it wasn't very big, but like it seemed so full of possibilities and what it could do in the world. It was just, now of course they don't give you a sheet of paper. They send it just to your bank account. But you, you get the sense. Do you remember your first job, your first paycheck? Of course, as life goes on, uh, the number of bills that consume our paychecks also increases. And if you've been working long enough, it can be easy to begin thinking that the sole purpose of our paycheck, that little sheet of paper, is only about fulfilling our own needs. I feel that in my life. But one of the great gifts of our work is you can earn some money, again, whether it's very much or very little, that allows you to have something to share, to be generous with others. And it doesn't always require extravagance or a lot of money. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, one of the groups that is called out for their generosity and like the Apostle Paul brags about them was a group of people that had very, very little. It's in uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. We're not going to read the passage, but 2 Corinthians 8. It talks about the Bereans who lived in Macedonia. It said in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us also. So having very, very little, the Bereans gave very much. So this is not about having so much excess that you can't possibly think of how to use it all, so you might as well share it with some other people. In fact, one of the great dangers is believing the lie that we can start to share when we have just a little bit more. Just a little later, not quite yet. The Ephesians themselves in this passage were likely people of very meager means. So this can be a small amount to share or a very large amount to share. It could be an extra piece of bread. It could be like an extra room in your house. Or it could be something a thousand times that much. I love what Dorothy Day said. She was in kind of the Catholic labor movement and uh, she's got this awesome quote. She says, it seems to me that in the future, the family, the ideal family, We'll always try to care for one more. That's the picture. Your eyes are looking out. Have you ever been on the receiving end of someone who had something to share with you? Anyone shared with you when you were really in need? It's like receiving life itself, especially if your back was really against the wall. I wonder if there's a close family member or a good friend that you have, and when you think about them, you've noticed they're always finding new ways to share with those in need. I think about my parents. 
if it's all right, if you'll just in, indulge me. They're, they're in their 80s, and I've been reflecting about their life uh, recently. I grew up in this small town. I've already said that my dad was in education. My mom stayed home with the kids. So it was a home where all our needs were met and then some. But it was a home of of modest means. Recently, actually, uh, not even connected to this sermon, I was thinking about uh, different ways that generosity showed up in their lives. And I realized it it just kind of popped up in all these places. So first of all, I, I mentioned, you know, we showed up in church. And I always remember my dad, you know, every other week he'd have that check folded up. I never saw what was in it, but every two weeks, it was going to be in the offering plate. He wanted to support uh, his local church. Then uh, every once in a while, we'd get together. We'd have a meal with uh, this this missionary couple from uh, Mexico, and they had kids, and I'd play with them and and stuff like that. Uh, But I never thought very much of it. I just thought, you know, nice family we met with. But about a month ago, I was talking with my dad, and he just casually mentioned that, you know, as 85 on a fixed income, they were meeting with this family again. And he said, yeah, we've been supporting them, uh, you know, for the last many years, probably like 50 or 60 years uh, that they've been contributing to this missionary. Then there was a local homeless shelter in our community, and I, I knew my mom kind of always got jazzed about the local homeless shelter. She'd try to collect all the clothes that were lightly used and make sure that they could be brought to this place, and when she could, she'd write a little check. And then recently, recently my parents, it's all right, we've got someone who needs to go potty. You got to respect that. (laughs) Recently my parents, my mom uh, has got a walker and uh, she can't, it's hard for her to get down the steps. There's like seven steps. So, you know, uh, her health is, she's frail. But I called my parents, and they were in the parking lot of uh, a grocery store, and I said, well, what are you guys doing? They were, like, sitting in their car in the parking lot of the grocery store. And they said, oh, um, our neighbor, who, just between you and me, is a very difficult person, okay? I won't mention any names here, but uh, yes. uh, She didn't have a a car that day, so my parents asked her if she needed a ride in their 16-year-old Chevy and Impala. A little check here, a little assembly of clothes over there, a 16-year-old car that can give a neighbor a ride in need. Nothing flashy, nothing extravagant. But as I reflect on it, it's almost as if they actually believed at their core that after working with their own hands, producing something that was good, they were entrusted with something, the amount that they had to share with anyone in need. Maybe you've seen generosity like that. Someone who is always finding a new way to share, finding a new way to give. And I have to say, when you see it, it's, it's really compelling, isn't it? It's actually strange. It, it, it's so different. It doesn't seem normal. In our world where everyone is doubling down on their own needs and kind of like the next thing that I'm going to spend on, it's different. It's got the aroma of Christ. Because that's what he does. That's who he is. That's how he acts. God is at work constantly in our world and in you and me, always producing something that is good, always bringing something and blooming in ways we don't know. And then he gives freely, lavishly, gratuitously, both in the gifts of his creation that we enjoy. I mean, good night, look at the leaves outside. But especially in the gift of grace he gives each to us. It's not earned. It's just like, here you go. 
I've given my body so that you can have a relationship with me. We read about that earlier in this series, earlier in this letter to the Ephesians. There's that little verse that put these two things together, work and gift. Here is the verse, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There it is again, work and generosity, except for here, the order is switched. God gives his gift, his grace of generosity. And then it says, he is now about his handiwork. Did you see the object of his handiwork? Did you see what the text said? You. You are his handiwork. And God has promised that he won't stop working on you, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion when Jesus Christ returns. Work and generosity, that's what we're called to but only because of his work and his generosity to us in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're grateful for just this simple text that reminds us today. And I ask that your spirit would be at work in each person. First of all, that we would feel your pleasure and your affirmation that whatever you've given our hands to do, that that has value in your kingdom and you're doing things that we cannot see. And Father, in some maybe even fresh way today that um, this grip that I feel in my life of clinging to what I have, that we would be open-handed and willing to respond to what you might be doing about how you might provide for someone else, uh, anyone in need. But that can only happen by your spirit. So we're asking your spirit to be engaged and involved with us moving in us in ways we cannot see. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. All God's people said, amen.